0: mentioned this, we are obviously getting close to Easter, we're two, less than two weeks away, and I'm sure you saw, or maybe you've seen the banner over town, we'll be mailing out, and that those all have all been put in the mail already, uh, and you'll see, if you live in the Culpeper, somewhat Madison, a little bit of orange, up towards Amosville area, uh, there's about 12,500 going out, we're mailing out uh, Easter invitations, so uh, those will hit mailboxes Thursday, Friday, uh, we have some emails scheduled. Um, we did a Facebook ad that we're pushing out to the same regions. And so we're just trying to get the word out about Easter. Maybe uh, you're always hoping that it ticks someone's mind that maybe is religious, that comes to church periodically, that they'll show up and hear the gospel and, and get saved. Uh, from a believer standpoint, you, wanna, you come to Easter, this is an opportunity to really zero in on the resurrection and what Christ has accomplished for us. I was reading an email, there's... A host of Muslim, they're talking about new believers um, out of the Islamic faith, and they're going to be celebrating Easter for the first time. And they listed what they have to give up just to celebrate Christ risen from the grave, and it's family, isolation, persecution. But they're looking forward to the opportunity to worship our risen Lord. So we're just excited about that, Uh, looking forward to invite friends and family and neighbors and people down the street or people you bump into uh, we're, we're inviting the kids in our Awana program and saying, hey, we're not going to have Awana next week. We'd love for them to join us for Good Friday. Uh, if you're wondering, hey, I wonder if my neighbor could come to Good Friday. Well, we're going to be going into the suffering, celebrating the Lord's Supper together uh, as his church. And so uh, when we come together, those that are saved, I would say if, if, you want, if you're saved, we, we'd love for you to participate with us and dive in as God has commanded. But we're going to be dealing with the suffering on Friday, walking through the garden and then through how he cries on the cross for what he was sweating. And so we're trying to link to his suffering. And then, obviously, on uh, Easter Sunday, we're going to walk through the Emmaus Road. And again, one of my favorite um, stories in Scripture, true stories that happened. Uh, I see myself in the two guys. I uh, just not getting it and then getting the opportunity to hear the gospel presented. Uh, actually, one of the stories, if, if Scripture interprets Scripture. So we always say the Old Testament points to... Christ? Well, you have that testimony because Christ goes back to Moses and the prophets and shows that he had to suffer, die, and rise again. And so it it is his testimony of how he proved himself from the Old Testament to two Jewish believers who are like, something weird happened. He's like, you've missed it. (laughs) You missed the whole point of scripture. Uh, It's one of the ways we know that, you know, we know it because we read the Old Testament. But when someone wants to argue with me, like, well, I don't think the Old Testament's about Christ. I'm like, well, Jesus said it was. So we're going to go with what Christ said on this scripture, interpret scripture. And so it's one way you can see that. So we'll be walking that journey together. Um, We're looking forward to just a a great weekend of worship. And and as believers, uh, recognizing one of the points we're going to talk about tonight is in this battle in 17. We'll be talking. Moses will be battling uh, the Amalekites. And at the end of it, they're going to put a memorial up and he's told to write it. And I think it's verse 14. um, Put a memorial in the book and then rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. In other words, write it and then read it out loud because I want them to hear it. And it's one of the things we need as believers is we need to go back to the word and we need to hear those messages for ourselves. It's not just something that... We know Joshua knew this. He's the guy leading. He, he knows when the staff was up, when God's power was there, that's how they won. But, but it's specifically for Joshua, not just for other people. It says, write it so Joshua and the men can hear it. And I think it's fascinating that we need to hear it. And as we talk to Christ's suffering and then his resurrection, as believers, we need that. We need to hear it said Uh, We need to walk through it. We need to sing this. This is necessary for us, and it works in our heart and helps us be aligned. And so I hope that we can tie this together. I call this final steps to Sinai, and this is where we're headed, the map. And I'm going to be able to go back to the map since I'm driven to point to it constantly. Um, We're coming down to Raphadim, and the last thing we talked about was them being horrible about water again and him having to hit the rock to get water out. And now we're gonna dive into some other turmoil they have right right here that's gonna take place. And then we'll be at Mount Sinai. And actually the story in chapter 18 could possibly be placed a little later in their history. In Exodus, it is placed here because we're about to enter into God speaking directly to people a lot. And so as God ordered scripture, he wanted to share the story about the judges and different things that were recommended by Jethro early on. But I put here, have you ever been at the end of a long trip? I was thinking of coming back from Florida, 16 hour drive. I'm about five hours away. When you're five hours away on a 16 hour trip and you're thinking we're gonna get home tonight, what is your one wish, right? Now remember, I have five kids in the car and I've got me in the car with the ability to not go to the bathroom is about two hour limit. You know, I'm worse than child. So don't ever travel with me, I'm terrible. Um, what is your dream at that point? You tank up the car, you get your last snacks, and your hope is you're going to make it home in five hours. With how many stops do you want? None, right? What happens in that last five hours? I am below Richmond at a Sheet's. I make the very wise decision to get a made-to-order burger at Sheet's and my kids to order. It took longer at Sheets than it would have been to go to a restaurant because there's too many choices and you're just making it, and there we are. And then you eat the Sheets made to order burger. And I'm not anti Sheets, all right? I'm just saying it's just not necessarily what's gonna help you get home in a safe way, that kind of thing. <laughs> You've got five and six year olds sitting there, and guess what's at Sheets along with your made to order burger? Every type of candy and cookie. And um, Trenton, they, they, there's a Mountain Dew that's purple and apparently has double the caffeine in it. Um, and I didn't, I didn't care. I said, I don't care. I'm going to get home. So one o'clock. I don't care how energized they are. gonna dump them in bed. They can bounce off the walls. It also has the, the, the double the stimulation of me to go to the bathroom as well. So it's like we're doing whatever they want. We're going. And we stopped at the Welcome Center to Virginia, first stop. We pull off. And here's the sad part. I had to stop. It's like, I got to go. And Heather's like, the kids will be fine, but you you can't handle it. You're the worst person to travel with. We'd rather travel without you. That's the way my dad feels, too. Uh, there's only one person I've ever traveled with, was my cousin, and his bladder's as small as mine. And so we're both like torturing ourselves and finally, I'm like, we got to stop at a rest area. He's like, oh, Kenny, let's stop at every rest area. Let's just, this, it might take us three more hours, but we don't have to be miserable, you know? We're not sure. But either way, you're on a long trip, you think, I'm going to be done. We have gone through the wilderness. We're trying to get to Mount Sinai. We are right here. And you're thinking, man, we have gone through the ringer. And what happens is Israel's just complained at Raphadim. They've seen God supply water from a rock. They're now headed to Mount Sinai, but it's not going to be easy slide down. This is going to be full of bathroom breaks and issues because right before anything happens, instead they're going to deal with outside Opposition, And I'm just going to hit this so you can see it. Tonight, we're just going to deal with the outside opposition, then we're going to deal with inside function, which is we're going to look at some internal functioning of the nation of Israel. We're going to get a picture of what it means to manage 2 million people traveling who've never traveled before and have had a permanent home for 400 some years and have been told what to do for 400 some years, now try to function as a nation. And so we're going to see that. I'm going to go back to the map because I can't help but point to the map, so therefore it's up there. So we're near Rephidim, and Israel encounters a people group, and it's called the Amalekites. And in all reality, these are cousins, distant cousins of the Israelites. I'm going to read this passage here. So if you have your Bible, chapter 17, verse 8 through 16, it says, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel, And and Moses said, and I'll I'll keep changing my pronunciation of that city. So just you'll never have the right pronunciation. That's what I do is I just wander around, maybe hitting it once or twice on the right pronunciation. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us out men and go out fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And I want you to notice that the rod of God is in his hand. He needs to hold the rod of God out. uh, And it's not some magic wand. It represents something. It represents God's presence and his power. So how did he, and we'll talk about this, how did he get the Red Sea? What did they use in Egypt? What have they done with the rock, struck it with the rod, and out comes the water? So we have got a visual representation of God's power, specifically God's power. So he acts with this. And so when we're now getting ready to battle, Moses is up high. There's a thousand reasons people thought around us. Moses was too old to fight. Fighting wasn't his giftedness. I think it's ridiculous. He was trained in Egypt to be a pharaoh. Pharaohs were trained to fight. He knew how to fight, one. When he dies at the age of 120, it says he's lost no vigor, no vitality. In other words, he's like a 20-something-year-old ready to go. And so it has nothing to do with his physical strength or even his ability to lead in battle. I would say of all the people in Israel, he is the most equipped to be a general. He was trained to be a general. He was trained to lead the armies. The pharaohs led their armies. They weren't backseat drivers. They went out to war and fought. Remember the one Thutmose III was the best military strategic, strategic guy. He's out there fighting. He just happened not to get killed out there. So he's, he's gifted He's raised in Pharaoh's house. This guy is militarily amazing. Where does God place the most amazing military guy in Israel? On a hill holding what? God's power out for them to know. And so we're going to see that. And it says there, um, so Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand, it's singular in Hebrew as well, by the way, hand-holding the staff, not hands, hand, that's out there, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. So we have a distinct holding out of God's power, a very visual representation. You win when God's power is on display, when he drops his hand, and I can't even switch it up, but I'm sure he did switch hands, both get tired. And so then it drops away. But Moses' hands, now it's plural. Now you know he's been trying both because right away you're like, well, to switch hands, Moses, it'd be easy. He is switching hands. His hands were heavy and they took a stone and put it under him and he sat there on and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. In other words, now both hands are up And we can switch between them if one gets tired of holding the staff back and forth. It's the rod that's there he has to hold the rod of. And Joshua disconfitted, and another word that might be more normal to us would be overcome. He overcame Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of who? Joshua. Joshua. And I want you to make a note of that in his ears this is the guy who keeps israel on the right path all through the book of joshua joshua keeps them on the straight and narrow they serve the lord all the years of joshua you think of all the people who don't need to be reminded that god's in control would be joshua it should be all the other people who is he rehearsing it for Joshua, if you ever think, I don't need to hear what God has done. I don't need to hear the gospel. I don't need to hear about the cross. If you look here, you see very specifically, it's Joshua who needs to hear it. And I sometimes wonder when I'm reading this and I think about how Joshua's character unfolds. And he has a really strong character. If these formative years of hearing what God has done specifically for you, and you wonder, how can I stand for Christ, rehearse what he's done, and make sure it's rehearsed for you. And then it says, For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. By the way, that happens all the way to Esther. And you know the, 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 who is the enemy in Esther? Who is that one guy? Haman the... Agathite and he's an Amalekite and ultimately when he dies it's the end of Amalek and so it's, it's a long ways out that's going to happen and Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi for he said because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation so where are we at here all that where are with the Amalekites they're a Bedouin or semi-Bedouin people they roam around this is their home turf. This is it. So I want you to think about this. You're a nomad or semi nomadic. And semi nomadic might mean you might have some more permanent residence, but your lifestyle is to bring your animals out and bring them back. So you get in the desert when there's more life there and you move to different cultivated grounds. Um, most of the Bedouin people are labeled by what they cared for. Camels would roam further out. If you had cattle, I mean, goats, and sheep, you would be a little closer. It doesn't typify what they work with, what livestock. But this is their area. This is their home. And two million people are coming into it. That is a what? That's a lot, yes. What is it, though? It's an invasion. It's a threat. And so here's what's fascinating. By the way, Amalek is the chief son of Eliphaz, who is the eldest son of Esau. And we're in Job, right? We're hearing about a guy named Eliphaz from Edom, and there is a good chance that that is the same Eliphaz. Now, this is Amalek, so one of his sons would be a chief, and then we get the Amalekites. So that's why I say distant cousins, connected way back, but there is a connection. Now, they're looking at the Israelites as a threat. They're not saying, oh, God's people are here. This is wonderful. Let's get them water. Let's see if they're hungry. Let's have them over for dinner. No, they're a problem in their mind. And here's what's interesting. They don't engage in normal warfare. They don't come and confront them face to face. You go to Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 18. Now, Deuteronomy is Moses' summary of everything that takes place. We'll be in Deuteronomy in 2023. We'll do Leviticus. I thought I could breeze through numbers, but that's just not possible. But we'll do Leviticus, numbers. We will not linger on the numbers, all right? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll move through the number part. But there's a lot of, of history in numbers and then you're going to hit Deuteronomy, which is Moses' recap, and we'll be there in, in spring of 23. But this is what he says there. He says, Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way, when you were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way, and smote the hind, hindmost of thee, or the, the end, the back, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou was faint and weary, and he feared not God. So how do they attack Israel? Israel's moving and you have stragglers, right? In any group of two million, somebody's not walking at the same speed. That's a given. If you walk in a group of three, somebody's not walking at the same speed. I walk extremely fast. I have a very short oldest brother and I was his little helper always through my life. I carried his tools, I did what he told me to do. It worked out well for me. He walks like a lightning speed but he always wanted me to walk next to him not behind as a kid i'd rather lag behind right Because there's less work at this end part right up there you're ready for the commands but you get two or three people together what happens someone's lagging right even now even when i'm a if i'm in a group i'll start lagging behind i'm like well let everyone go ahead of me and i'll just figure it out from there i like to see from the back end that what's happening right but someone's gonna lag now there's two million people how many people are lagging who has a sick kid yeah, 1 million. 1.5 million people are lagging, and half a million are actually getting where they're going, and everyone's like, come on, we're trying to get somewhere, right? If you have a big family, you know who are the wanderers and who stay with it, right? If you have one kid, you know who the wanderer is, probably your spouse. But either way, it's, you're going, Right? We know what happens. Guess what they did? They just attacked the outskirts. That's like animals, right, would do that. They're going to go for the weakest link, and they're going to nibble away. What happens then? You're losing your most feeble, and you're going to turn. Your focus is totally changed. Well, this is happening. They're killing off anyone that was separated from the group or lagging behind or slow. So God calls them to do something. Go out and fight. And so God took Israel out of Egypt. Now, remember, here they are. Here is the promised land. What's the shortest way to the promised land? Sure. But there's the Philistines here, and God didn't want them to get in battle with the Philistines. So he takes them all the way down to avoid a fight. What happened here at the Red Sea? Who came out to get Israel? Egyptians. With their army, right? Did the Israelites fight the Egyptians? No, what happened to the Egyptians? They're drowned. They've not fought at all yet. They've argued, but they haven't fought. They haven't got a sword out and said, I'm going to go in battle. This is their first battle. They've been going south to avoid war the whole time. Well, we know they're going south because God wants them here because there's a law to get and a bunch of other things to grab. So he leads them south to avoid war He crushes Egypt in the sea so they don't have to have any war. But now he says to them, I want you to engage in battle. I want you to get your sword. I want you to get your spear. I want you to get your armor. I want you to go out. Israel had to take direct action. And I put this, note this, this is the first time they had to get involved. They had to step up and do something. They were not just watching God accomplish something, though God is going to accomplish it. We make that crystal clear. However, they had to take direct action. There was a Puritan named Joseph Hall. who stated, in vain shall Moses be upon the hill if Joshua be not in the valley. In other words, at this point in the game, if Joshua is not going to get out and fight, it's an absolute waste of time to be up there. Not because God's not powerful enough, but because God has now, and I hope you can see it, there's a change, right? God is expecting Israel to get involved, to be a part of this. He's not going to, he's going to miraculously take over Amalekites, but he's going to do it with their involvement. It says this, prayer, he finishes quote, prayer without means is a mockery of God. And I want you to think about that for a second. How often do we pray, can I sit on this, and then sit down? I'm just going to, I'm praying, I'm praying. I'm not involved, but I'm praying. And what they're saying as you see this change, it's not that you accomplish because God cannot accomplish, it's that God wants involvement, and he's changed what Israel needs to do. They need to be involved now. They're driven to this. Israel, verse 13, was able to overcome, and that's that disconfitted word, which actually means to inflict heavy casualties. It does not it does not mean that they had defeated the Amalekites. By the way, the Amalekites show up in Kadesh Barnea in Numbers with the Canaanites, and they actually help the Canaanites defeat the Israelites when they go to war without God. Remember, they say they're not going to come, God punishes them, then they say we've sinned, and then we go, and we, we go forward, and, and they're going to do battle, and the Amalekites actually join the Canaanites in defeating them just to prove that they need God, or needed God down there. But as we clearly know, they get to see God give the win. That's the memorial. Moses held out the rod. This is the symbol, again, of God's power, the presence of God's power. Not the presence of God, very specifically, his power. Because what, how, do we, how do they know that God's there? What are the two things they already have that tells them God is there? Cloud, fire. They know God's presence. This is specifically God's power on display. It part of the Red Sea. It split rocks for water. It's what they used to throw down and become a snake. They've used this rod to show God's power. It's his power that's going to have them overcome. Moses is commanded to commemorate, write, and hear it. Read to Joshua The most spiritually minded person besides Moses in the camp. And I would say he trumps Aaron, because what does Aaron do in this book? At some point, there's a golden calf, and it's Aaron who's making it. By the way, in Jewish tradition, they try to minimize Aaron's error, like he he tripped over himself and made a golden calf, because he is the high priestly head, and he's the guy that made the golden calf. But you can't walk back from it. Aaron makes the golden calf. He points to it like it's the Lord, I'll give him that, but he makes the golden calf ironically, when they're getting the law from God, they're breaking it. And so Joshua, I would say the most or one of the most spiritually minded people out of two million people is the one that has to recount it. Um, Why do we need reminders? What happens when we don't give or get reminders? What will take place in us? We forget. What else do we do? That's the forget apathetic part. What happens if you've achieved something and somebody achieved it for you and you forget that somebody achieved it for you, who do you think achieved it? You start thinking you did it. And then you start worshiping you. Why does Joshua need to hear this? So he never forgets God is why he's successful, what made this possible, who won the victory. Because when Joshua, or if Joshua would forget that, then he would start thinking it was because he was so good in battle. And by the way, a phenomenal military guy as well, but never takes credit for it. And he shouldn't, because God won the victory. The Israelite soldier walked into battle from a different perspective than we walk into. They walked into it with the mindset that their God was fighting the battle for them, and they're participating with God. Not, "I hope God makes my sword super strong." Now you hear the prayers about my sword, and Jonathan's going to go out in battle, but they approach battle not from their own bravado, and I'm not saying that courage is not important, because they talk about being courageous and going out and doing battle, but the underlying steel, what was their backbone in their mind? What gave them the fortitude? It was the fact that they were doing what God, they were fighting for God. They're in his purpose and he was giving the victory. And so the Israelite soldier had a confidence that didn't make sense to the rest of the world. And they ended up with victories that didn't make sense because God was fighting for them, but they needed to understand they were involved, but God was bringing the victory. Now. I put here, we need the same reminders and we need them for the same reasons. We can have spiritual victories. We can embark and break down walls on the mission field. And you know, the number one temptation is to worship yourself in some way, shape, or form. You have heard an enormous amount of reports, probably in your lifetime, from missionaries who most likely and often sadly talk about what they've done and neglect to talk about what God's done. And I'm not talking about the cursory tack on. Well, this is what we did. God gave the victory. But we spent 90 minutes talking about us and about four seconds connecting it to God. Well, that's not talking about what God has done. That's talking about what you did for God, not what God did through you. And the soldier that fought for Israel was saying, I'm interested, I am confident because God is God is accomplishing his purpose through me, not me accomplishing God's purpose for him. And There's a different mentality there, and we must have that mentality. Moses says, the Lord is my banner. That's what Jehovah Nisi means. Lord is the banner. That's where you get Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah peace. There's all those least to God being a characteristic of God, and it's the banner And you think of military campaigns, they have their banner, that's what they launch with, but they weren't saying God is our our, our, um, mascot, it wasn't like, hey, you got the beavers and I got God, and we'll see who wins this one, it is, God is the banner, he's the whole reason we even win or fight. And then he has an altar, and most likely a sacrifice, because that's why you build an altar, it doesn't talk about it here, but they would have likely sacrificed and then a reminder of future conflict with the Amalekites. They would, again, be up here in Kadesh Barnea attacking Israel yet again. We're going to see it all through history. You're going to see him show up with Saul, who doesn't destroy all the Amalekites like he's commanded to do. And ultimately, you're going to have Haman, the Agagite, who is an Amalekite. And what does he attempt to do? Wipe out the whole Jewish nation with the law and he's, and he's paid for it out of his pocket. He's not going to go kill himself. He paid a ransom to a king to wipe out all the Jews. And he's an Amalekite. Do you see the danger of what Saul did, by the way? If you're reading Saul's story, and he doesn't finish wiping out the Amalekites like God said, and why does God want to do it? And he says something about them. They don't care about God. That was one huge part of why they attacked Israel. They don't fear reverence God. They are rebellious against their maker and creator. They attack Israel again. They keep attacking. And if Israel would have obeyed, especially during Saul's time, they wouldn't have the battle during Esther's time. Well, if they would have been obedient, they wouldn't have been in Esther's situation. But either way, it goes on from there. There's some key components to take away here. One, there comes a time when you need to get into the battle. God expects action and we make a mockery of God when we sit idly on the sidelines praying for him to do our work. God doesn't need me to wield a, store, a sword. He commands me to wield a sword. Does that make sense? God doesn't, we know he doesn't need it. He just wiped out the, He wiped out the best military in the world and they didn't lift a finger. Does God need help with the Amalekites? Not at all. But he told them, get their sword and get involved in the battle understand there's a time when you have to get involved yet we can easily become too confident and in success neglect to see what he gave the victory to us all along now you're victorious and you start saying huh i did it they got involved in the battle they engaged with it because that's obedience they were told to do it while resting their full confidence upon God to give the victory. So they go out with their full force, with all their energy, all their skill, all their training, put to task, because God said, go engage them in battle. I'm going to be obedient. How do you obey? We always tell the kids, sweetly, I can't remember, Heather has it down, it's three things, quickly, sweetly, and completely. There we go. My parents never taught me that. (laughs) (laughs) I obey with a boot just kidding uh, it says the same thing just in different love language uh, so right you do it with the right spirit you do it immediately but you do it to the full ability that you have completely that's not a haphazard well let's send kenny out with his bum arm i can fight left hand and god's gonna win anyway look at me just waving a sword around that's how I use a sword with my right hand, too, just so you know. If you're, if you're in a sword fight with Kenny, you're going to win. <laughs> but if you're ever hoping I'm going to win, you're going to lose, right? So that's just the kind of, don't be on my side, be against me, is what I'm saying. Um, all that to say, you do with everything you have, but it's says an act of obedience. It's not the sense of, I'm doing something that accomplishes it. Your full confidence rests in God. It's not a conjured up bravado or self-reliance that gave the Israelite soldier his courage, It was a deep sense of being in God's will and knowing God was executing his purpose through him. I am going to obey 100% with everything I have while fully resting my confidence for victory in the one who sent me to battle, not in what I can do and in my accomplishments. And I put here, do we live life with that balance? This is a lesson that Israel will struggle with. In Deuteronomy, and I think in Exodus, I, I just finished reading through the whole Pentateuch, and so it's hard to remember what book it's in. They talk about, you're going to get into the land, and he tells Moses, I think it was Deuteronomy. He says, they're going to get in there, and they're going to get the land, they're going to forget how they got the land, and they're going to serve other gods and fall away. And that's that whole reminder and memorial. Joshua gets this his whole lifetime, and I think all the elders that served with him, it says that they serve God. And then you open up the book of Judges, and the theme that comes up in Judges is every man did what was right in his own eyes. And it's a fascinating book. I can't wait to preach through, but it's a pretty despicable look at humanity and how quickly we will do whatever we think is right. And if you had to define our society, would you not use those words? Everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. Think about it for a second. I think it's right. So I want to do it. This is how I feel about it. This is what I want to do with my life. This is how I identify. This is you name it. Just go run the whole gamut. It's judges. I think it's a fascinating correlation at some point. Well, they end up at Mount Sinai and I'm ending up out of time. So I'll move through this quickly. They're in chapter 18. We're at Mount Sinai. And what happens is we're going to see some inside function. And I'm going to gloss over the reading. Hopefully you can go back and read. Verses one through six is Jethro coming um, to meet Moses. He's heard everything God has done. I just want you to realize something. This is no secret. All the nations know what's taking place. We'll see that with Jericho. They actually go back to the Red Sea. Rahab says, we heard what happened at the Red Sea. We've heard, and then there's more recent battles up here. We've heard of you've conquered these um, Og and one other one. I can't remember all the names of the kings, but they've conquered up here. And so they're going to remember this. And I want you to realize it is told. Well, this is Midian right here. Right here's Midian. They actually remember Moses was here at one point with sheep from his father-in-law. We're here, he hears about it. So he's coming over to meet up with Moses. God's name's been honored. And he comes to bring back Moses' wife and sons. Now, there's a lot of speculation that surrounds this and a lot of legitimate um, reasons why His wife and sons were not with him. One is Exodus 4, when there's the battle over circumcision, they say that possibly he sent his wife back, and that word for sent back, by the way, is divorced, separated, not in the, I don't think it's the context that we're trying to see here, but I do want you to know the the force of the words that were used, um, that he would have sent him back, that's in 18, because of that issue. I read another commentator, I think that pegs it a lot better. It says Moses was not going to remove his two sons from the redemptive work that Christ was about to do, God was about to do. So they're saying that after they exited here, he would have sent his wife back to her dad as a kindness to his father-in-law. You see a lot of respect for his father-in-law there. I lean towards that. I lean towards the idea that after all that happens in Egypt, Moses, out of kindness or maybe his wife's desire, Goes back to visit her dad. She's lived with him. They've lived with him all that time. The boys, when I say boys, you're thinking twelve-year-olds. It's thirty-year-olds and forty-year-olds. You know they're they're older. Uh, they go back to visit with Jethro, and I think that's a more likely sent back, going back to visit. And Jethro then comes back to bring them home. But you're going to find both versions of that, uh, different variations. But what's interesting is how Moses greets his father-in-law, and it's with respect, and then I want you to just two words, respect and reverence. In seven, Moses goes out to meet his father-in-law. Now, there's two million people. You don't just walk right up to the head of two million people. So they're on the outskirts of the camp. They don't just let any stranger wander into Mount Sinai. So Jethro identifies himself. Now, when he does that, Moses goes out to meet his father-in-law, bows down to him, kissed him, and they talk about each other's welfare, and then they come back to Moses' tent. So he goes to the outskirts of camp. He meets with his father-in-law. He actually shows respect by bowing to the ground, which is what you would do uh, showing respect for the patriarch in a family. Now, who does, if you think about running something, how many people, quote-unquote, are under Moses at this point in time? Two, Two million people. Jethro's never had two million people under his control. Moses, let's be honest, is exponentially more important than Jethro in the scheme of world management. Thus, people are on the outskirts saying, I'm Moses' father-in-law, and Moses comes to greet him. More likely, they would think, hey, someone should go see Moses. He's at the tent of meetings, his tent where everything's taking place, and he comes out. And I want you to notice something about him that Moses shows his father-in-law the honor he deserves, even though he leads a people over two million. And then Jethro shows his faith and affirmation of the one true God. That's verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, for in the thing wherein they, they dealt proudly, he was above them. And that's how that world would have thought about it. This was a battle of gods, so to speak. And God proved he's the only God. And this is in Jethro, Moses' father-in-law took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God and Aaron came and all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. In other words, you see Jethro worshiping and affirming God as the one true God. I put here as an action step because we're running out of time. Do we give respect to others even when we hold a high position? And that's something to keep in mind. How is Moses able to do that? What world leader have you ever seen who's truly respectful of someone who would be beneath them now? Because that is the honor and position they deserve. How is that possible? And that's because Moses doesn't see himself incorrectly. When you cannot show respect to others because of who you are, you see yourself as higher than you are. You view yourself as God. You may think, no, Kenny, I would never see myself as God. When you don't show respect for other people because of who you are, you view yourself as God. I don't care what your brain tells you. That's what you're actually doing. Why is Moses able to do this? If you realize in Scripture he's considered the most humble of all, that doesn't mean he was dragging the floor all the time, it's because he never saw himself as taking the place of God. He saw himself in a position given by God. And so he's functioning in the role that God gave him, not with eliteness and, I don't know the word, is uppityness is the the idea right here. He didn't go to Jethro and say, hey man, welcome to my group of two million. Now you see how important your son-in-law is? I'm pretty important. No, he bows down to him. How does he bow down to him? Who's around him? Everybody. Moses the leader of Israel, whom God speaks to directly, bows down to his father-in-law. Can you imagine being an Israelite? You're a Reubenite. You're like, what in the world is going on? Haven't seen this before. What's happening? Well, he's exemplifying true humility, but it also tells you he understood who he was, and he didn't take God's role. Whenever we struggle with pride, where we cannot give the respect someone deserves, even though we're the boss, right? I'm the boss, but I'm not going to respect somebody else or somebody else. I can't respect them. See, pride is what Satan fell prey to, wanting what God had, the glory due God. And so when we wrestle with this, it communicates to us, whether or not you think this, it's trying to scream at you that you're struggling with the idea of being a mini-god, because that's what you do if you're wrestling with being in God's place. And Moses is then showing us very physically how he was not wrestling with trying to usurp God's authorities. He didn't put on airs, even though he had been entrusted with much. And then I put here, it's great to see God's reputation, and it's great to watch Jethro come into Israel and affirm to them, "Your God. This is the true God. We heard this. This is... This is unarguable proof that he is the one true God and he sacrifices and worships with Israel. Notice who's drawn in. Aaron and the elders and the whole nation watches somebody that Moses just bowed down to, respecting as father-in-law, who's not from their nation, worshiping the God that is the true God. What did the Amalekites not do? They did not, there you go, And Jethro, another nation, is coming in, and what does he do? He fears. And you have in Exodus a perfect pairing of two different nations coming together, one that doesn't fear God and one that ends up fearing God, and you see the different outreach that takes place. Now, we're out of time. I'm going to go to the next thing, activity and advice. The rest of the chapter is Moses wakes up the next morning, and his daily life is consumed with judging people. Not judging like, I judge you, I judge you, but deciding, exercising discernment. And Moses' father-in-law says, hey, this isn't the best way to do it. Let me suggest an alternative. Why don't you, he actually says, teach the people, then set judges over for the cases that they can handle, and then handle the really difficult ones. But he actually starts by telling him, 20, and thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. 21, then you're going to provide out of all the people, able men that fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. But notice his advice begins with Moses doing something different. Why don't you teach them, and here's the word, to be discerning instead of just discerning for them? You see the longevity that's there? It's actually a child-rearing principle. If you're raising your kids, you can raise them to obey every rule you give. And then they go off somewhere to college and they encounter a situation for which you do not have a rule. So what does your child do? Hey, dad, I don't have a rule for this one. It's not gonna happen, right? They're not calling home. Now they have to make a decision. What have we not taught them to do? Be discerning, exactly. Our goal as parents, and it never ends, by the way, you say, my kids are grown, What's done is done. Well, you have grandkids. Oh no, they're grown as well, and they don't have any kids. So you go on. Look, you have kids in here. You've got uh, people that you can count as your kids because you're older than them. You're always pouring this in. This is what a church is about. This is the iron sharpens iron idea. But he says, teach them to be discerning. And then the solution for the day to day is godly men over top of different levels. He's still he's still helping Israel function but now doing in a way that has longevity. Look, 40 years from now, Moses is gone, and now these people have to to what for themselves? Discern and judge for themselves. And it's going to be the teaching that's going to make that difference. If that doesn't hopefully light a fire in us to say, let's teach, let's pour into people, let's teach the ordinances... If you're a parent, you still have the opportunity with kids in the home. Let's pour the ordinances and the teaching into them so they can discern, so they can walk through the decision biblically. And if your kids are grown, then by all means, teach my kids. All right, pour into them. I want every every parent here wants you to pour in. So the opportunity is endless. Here's the thing. Jethro suggests something, but not arrogantly. He says, check in with God, actually. Make, Make God bless this. And you see a difference. I put here, what does Moses do? He takes advice. How did Jethro give the advice? Subjecting it to the approval of God. God be with you. That was his statement of may God bless this. Both the giving and receipt of advice was done honoring God. So as you look at the functioning, can that be said of us? Can we sharpen each other? Iron only sharpens iron when they can actually function, and I need to not do that with my shoulder, but either way, sharpen it or do the one-arm thing. Um, But if you resist any of that sharpening, the discernment and the learning, well, you're not going to get sharp. So that's some of the function. Um, Where are we at? We're at Mount Sinai. We're about to get a bunch of laws. Uh, There's one hugely disappointing story in Exodus, and that's the golden calf in the middle of all this law giving. This is where the Ten Commandments come in. This is where laws, they have the function. We're going to see the tabernacle laid out. We're going to see the tabernacle built. And so we'll be finishing that up this spring. And so I'm going to basically break down the day, weeks we have left and then we'll, we'll fit it into there. But that is now them. Back to my map. We are now, maybe, the computer's beating me, we are now here and we're going to stay here for the rest of excess.